So you become a Christian, but the battle continues to rage, right? And you face two sorts of evils. Jesus taught us to pray, deliver us from evil. And we constantly face two kinds of evil. On the one hand, there are those situational evils outside of us that press against us. The Bible calls it the problem of suffering. But then there's a moral evil within us, sin living in me, sin living in you, and it arises within us and overflows from us and hurts other people. The problem of suffering, the problem of sin, we're in the battle even as Christians. And it may be that you are tempted to let go to give up. The book of Hebrews takes aim at your soul. God speaks His truth in love to you this evening through the writer to the Hebrews. Truth spoken in love to strengthen your heart. Chapter 1 begins with declaration, one long chapter of declaration. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. And off we go. And the chapter unfolds and reveals the Son of the living God as the Creator, the Sustainer, the Owner, the Ruler, and the Redeemer of the world. And then we come to chapter 2. Let me read the text for us through verse 18. Therefore, we must pay closer attention, much closer attention to what we have heard lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere from Psalm 8, what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while, was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God He might taste death for everyone. 
For it was fitting that He, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For He who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why He is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in Him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, He Himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death He might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who, through fear of death, were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that He helps, but He helps the offspring of Abraham." Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and high priest, merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. This is God's Word. Let me pray for us. Spirit of the living God, the unfolding of Your words gives light and warmth and encouragement and clarity and power. And we know that You are opposed to the proud, but You give grace to the humble. And so we come before You desiring to come before You with humility and ask that You would give the grace that You promise through Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Verses 1 through 4 are all about exhortation to hold fast. We'll linger there for a little bit, but the majority of our time will be focused on verses 5 through 18. Because, having given us an exhortation to hold fast, the writer goes on to give us motivation to hold fast. First of all, exhortation to hold fast, verses 1 through 4. Therefore, verse 1, in other words, chapter 1, since God has spoken by His Son, and since God's Son is the Creator, the Sustainer, the Owner, the Ruler, and the Redeemer of the world, therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard in the gospel, lest we drift away from it. We must hold fast. Consider the message. What is it that we have heard? We have heard of a great salvation, verse 3. Do you ever struggle with destructive words that hurt people? In the gospel, God promises to save you from guilty to forgiven through Jesus. Do you ever struggle with addictive behavior? 
In the gospel, God promises to save you from godless cravings to godly cravings through Jesus. Do you ever find yourself climbing up ladders going nowhere? In the gospel, God promises to save you from wasting your life to doing what really matters through Jesus. Do you ever struggle with anger and resentment? In the gospel, God promises to save us from holding grudges to canceling debts. Do you ever struggle like me with suffocating worry, anxiety? In the gospel, God promises to save you from fear to rest through Jesus. In a word, all things considered, God promises to save you from living for yourself and dying to dying to yourself and living for Him through Jesus. This is the message that we have heard, a great salvation. But not only a great salvation, a true salvation. Verse 3, this message was declared at first by the Lord Jesus Himself. And not only Jesus, it was attested to us by those who heard, the apostles. All the while, God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. This message is reliable. Consider the battle. The writer understands the human condition. Scripture is always locating you in the real world, within the context of the daily tug of war. On the one hand, God speaks to you in Jesus, come to me and I will give you life. But on the other hand, world, flesh, and devil whisper to you, come to me and I will give you rest. And there you are, waking up and walking down the street, caught between these competing voices that bid for the allegiance of your heart. How will I respond? How will you respond? Will you hold fast to what you have heard and live or will you let go and neglect such a great salvation and die? God would have you hold fast and live. And He speaks His truth in love in the remainder of the chapter to motivate you to hold fast to this great salvation by giving you strong reasons to hold fast. First of all, verses 5 through 9, hold fast to your salvation because Jesus fulfills your destiny. Secondly, hold fast to your salvation because Jesus regards you as family. Finally, 
Hold fast to your salvation because Jesus secures your liberty. Strong reasons to hold fast. Consider them with me one by one. First of all, hold fast to your salvation because Jesus fulfills your destiny. Verse 5 through 9, notice, For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. The first word for signals a basis for the greatness of our salvation and a reason to hold fast to our salvation. The question at this point in the text is who is destined by God to rule the world to come? Not angels. But if not angels, then who? The writer reaches back and he finds Psalm 8. And he quotes, It has been testified somewhere, what is man, that you are mindful of him, or the son of man, that you care for him. You made him a little lower for a little while, lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. It's a psalm of David. David is overcome with wonder as he considers, on the one hand, God's majesty revealed in his creation, and on the other hand, man's dignity as revealed in God's purposes. God has bestowed on him glory, making mankind a little lower than the angels, but giving him dominion over God's creation. And the writer asserts this dignity is God's design for mankind, not only for the present world, but also for the world to come. But have you noticed the problem? Verse 8, at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to mankind. Man is to rule creation, but we do not see him ruling. Rather, we see man subject to death. Whatever man may have conquered, he has not conquered death. Rather, death reigns over us. And the point in retrieving Psalm 8, the writer is saying, Psalm 8 is not yet your story. Sin has spoiled the show. We were made for glory, but we are reduced to dust. But there is a solution in the gospel. We do see Him. We do see Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, crowned with glory and honor. No, we do not yet see Psalm 8 fulfilled in us, but we do already see Psalm 8 fulfilled in Jesus. In His incarnation, God made Jesus for a little while lower than the angels, and in His resurrection, God crowned Jesus with glory and honor because of His suffering and death. Do you see that God's goal is not to leave us in our misery, but to bring, verse 10, many sons to glory? And did you notice God's way by giving us a man for others? 
In verse 10, the word that is used is somewhat difficult to translate in English. It's the Greek word archegos, trailblazer, lead climber, pathfinder, founder, pioneer, the man for others who goes ahead of us to secure the way. The purpose of the incarnation and the crucifixion of Jesus, the writer says, is so that by the grace of God, our pathfinder, our Lord Jesus, the man for others, might taste death for everyone. Adam the first was a man for others, but by his sin he subjected all of us to death and misery. But Adam the second, his name is Jesus the man for others, and by his death for sin, he tears down the wall and leads many sons and daughters to glory. He's the pioneer of our salvation, the first man to be restored to our glorious destiny. He rules the world to come. But he does not enter all by himself. Are you a Christian? then you are united to Jesus. And what has happened to the shepherd will happen to the sheep. One small step for Jesus, one giant leap for all of you whom Jesus represents. Raised to glory with Jesus, we too will rule the world to come. It's a great salvation. Don't let go. Hold fast. Say to your sins and sufferings, you're not yet subjected enemies. Jesus fulfills my destiny. That's one strong reason to hold fast. But there's a second. Verses 10 through 13, the writer says to us, Hold fast your salvation because Jesus regards you as family. Verse 10, for it was fitting that God for whom and by whom all things exist and bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Notice the focus here. A Savior made perfect through suffering. A vocational process, as Peter O'Brien puts it, a vocational process by which Jesus is made fully complete. Don't misunderstand. He's not telling us that the imperfect Son of God became the perfect Son of God, but that the perfect Son of God became the perfect Savior through suffering. To bring many sons and daughters to glory, he must succeed where we have failed. And he has. And in so doing, he's a complete and a proven Savior. Now, to the world, a Savior who suffers is foolish. But to God, did you notice? A Savior made perfect through suffering is very fitting. Why? Why was it fitting that God make Jesus perfect 
through suffering. Verse 11, the text says, because He who sanctifies, that is our Lord Jesus, and those who are sanctified, that is you and me who believe on Jesus, all have one source. Literally, the text reads, all are of one. Jesus and His people share in the same family. God the Father is the source of our unity. On the one hand, Jesus is uniquely the Son of God. The theologians call this by eternal generation. But on the other hand, we are sons and daughters of God by gracious adoption. And the Father has established a bond between us. He has bound us together with Christ as one family. Notice, because Jesus and His people are all of one family, verse 11, many of us need to hear this tonight. Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. Maybe you walk in the post office as I sometimes do. And there they are, wanted, a few faces, some real troublemakers. And how do you respond? How does Jesus respond? Because it's sort of a window into what we are like, isn't it? Oh, the details differ. But at bottom, we are all the same. And yet Jesus looks upon us. And He is not ashamed to call us His brothers. When I was a kid, I used to go to family reunions. Have you ever had this experience? I had an old uncle. My grandfather had about 12 siblings. And there was one particular uncle and early on as a kid, I noticed he was always sitting by himself. Well, he had troubles. He had big, bad troubles. And everyone just sort of avoided that uncle. How would you respond to a person like that? How does Jesus respond to a family member like that? Jesus is not ashamed to call you his brother his sister. He's not ashamed. And the writer underscores the strength of this family bond and the reality of Jesus' unabashed identification by citing two Old Testament passages. Did you notice the first passage? The writer recounts the words of King David from Psalm 22, verse 22. If you're familiar with Psalm 22, you know that the first half of the psalm is a lament of God's suffering servant. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But then there is this sudden turn into the second half of the psalm, and lament gives way to thanksgiving because God has delivered His suffering servant. And the text reads, 
I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. But the writer recognizes that the words of King David find ultimate fulfillment on the lips of Jesus because on Friday he's delivered over to death. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But on Sunday, God raises Jesus from the dead and the singing Savior sings Psalm 22. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praises. But the writer appeals to a second passage from the Old Testament, this time Isaiah chapter 8, verses 17 and 18. The prophet Isaiah finds that his message of salvation and judgment is rejected, but even so, the names of Isaiah and his children bore witness to the message. Isaiah literally means, the Lord is my salvation. And the names of his two children, remnant will return and quick to the plunder. And so in the meantime, Isaiah says, I will wait for the Lord. I will put my trust in Him. Here am I, and the children that the Lord has given me, we are signs and symbols in Israel from the Lord Almighty. But the writer to the Hebrews understands and recognizes that the words of Isaiah the prophet find their fulfillment on the lips of Jesus. As God's word spoken through Isaiah was rejected, so God's word spoken through Jesus was rejected. But the writer puts on the lips of Jesus, even, even so, I will put my trust in my Father. But it gets even better. The writer sees Jesus as the victorious Christ raised from the dead on Sunday. It is one of the most moving passages in all of the New Testament. Can you see it? Jesus, raised from the dead, returns to His Father, the man for others. And He turns to His Father as if to say, Look, Father, here I am. And all of the children that you have given me, because he's representing you. He's giving you entrance, a witness to the world of his promise and power to save. He is not ashamed to be called your brother. It's a great salvation. The writer is saying, don't let go, hold fast, say to your guilt and say to your shame, Jesus regards me as family. But there's one final reason, motivation, and you find it as the passage concludes in verses 14 through 18. 
Hold fast to your salvation because Jesus secures your liberty. The focus continues to be on the incarnation. Did you notice verse 14? Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. And then in verses 16 and 17, he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. The Son of God takes on flesh for two purposes, the writer says. First of all, to set you free from the fear of death. Verse 14 and 15, he became flesh so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who, through fear of death, were subject to lifelong slavery. Notice, the way the devil subjects us to lifelong slavery is through fear of death. Why does a person, and why should a person, fear death. Later in this same letter, chapter 9, verse 27, because to sin against God is to kindle God's wrath and to merit God's wrath when we face Him at death. And since it belongs to God to repay sinners, the writer says in chapter 10, verse 31, it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And so the threat of wrath is real. So the fear of death is real. And so the devil has a very powerful weapon to keep us enslaved. But what if the wrath of God against us was propitiated, satisfied, the wrath removed, the wrath quenched? Then we would have nothing to fear in death. And that is exactly the case for those of you who love Jesus, who trust Him. The Son of God became flesh so that, verse 17, He might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Jesus disarms the devil and delivers His captives by propitiating, removing God's wrath through His death. He secures your liberty. He sets you free from the fear of death. But secondly, He sets you free to stay true to God to the very end. The text closes with verse 18. For because He Himself has suffered when tempted, He is able to help those who are being tempted. There's the help of empathy. If you have suffered, you know that one of the most difficult things in times of suffering is when you encounter people who do not get it. They do not understand. And so you feel isolated and all alone. But you also know what a comfort it is when you encounter someone who does understand, who has walked that path ahead of you. 
our Lord Jesus Christ gives you the help of His empathy because He understands your temptations because He Himself has experienced every kind of temptation, every kind of suffering, and yet He has remained true to the end. That's the help of empathy, but we need more, and Jesus gives it. There's the help of potency. He's much more than your pattern for staying true to God. Because of His resurrection from the dead, Jesus is your power for staying true. You are united to the resurrected Lord Jesus, the true and living vine. And by faith, we can draw upon His strength to enable us to walk in a new obedience, to stay true and loyal, not to neglect, not to drift away, but to stay the course. A great salvation. Don't let go. Hold fast. Say to those voices that would keep you in slavery, Jesus secures my liberty. So there's exhortation. Since you have heard such a great salvation, pay close attention to your great salvation. And then there's all kinds of motivation. Hold fast to your salvation because Jesus fulfills your destiny. Jesus regards you as family. Jesus secures your liberty. And so I ask the question as we close, why would you ever want to neglect and let go of such a great salvation? Let me pray for us. Our Father, we thank You that Your Word is like an arrow that takes aim at our troubled hearts, our drifting hearts, our struggling hearts. And You speak into our fallen condition. You bring good news. Lord, I pray that even as we were reminded this morning, that we would be very careful in the way that we hear tonight. We all struggle. We all are tempted to drift. And perhaps the way we present ourselves, no one would ever know it. But you see, and you move towards us, and you speak good news. And we pray that we would be like that soft, fertile soil that receives the Word implanted that is able to save and to sanctify our soul. 
I pray for my brothers and sisters tonight. I too am beset with so many weaknesses, with so much drift. We're all in this together. And I thank you that you are not ashamed to call us your elder brother. And that you say we are exactly the people that you are looking for. And so would you so work in our hearts by the power of your Holy Spirit to strengthen our grasp upon you that we would be men and women who live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave Himself for us. And that the good news would not stop with us, but that we would be instruments of this good news as we move into the world this week, into our homes, into our neighborhoods, into the workplace, and that we might be able to speak a Bible-shaped word like this in a Bible-like way that is winsome and wise and is just the best news our neighbor has ever heard. Please do this for the sake of your great name and for the growth of your people, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I would invite you to stand with me as we conclude our worship. We've focused on the exhortation to hold fast, and yet the reason that we can hold fast is because our Lord Jesus holds us fast. Let's stand together and conclude our worship by singing, He will hold me fast.
And now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, that great shepherd of the sheep, may He equip you with everything good for doing His will, working in us what is pleasing in His sight through Jesus, to whom belongs glory forever and ever. Amen.